the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. I'm going to share with you one of my pet peeves. I have to drive downtown a lot. And it used to be there were all kinds of places to park downtown. But now they've turned all the loading zones into commercial loading zones. They've taken half the spaces and given them to the valet companies. The rest of them, they've got meters on. And if you don't have change, you have to use the app on your phone. You know, sometimes I end up having to park maybe two, two and a half blocks away from where I want to be. This is a peeve of mine. I should be able to park right in front of where I want to park. Today we remember St. Innocent. We call him St. Innocent of Alaska, but he was also St. Innocent Metropolitan of Moscow and all Russia. St. Innocent had a little bit bigger problem to deal with. St. Innocent was from the region of Irkutsk, Irkutsk, which is in Siberia. It's just north of Mongolia, right? So I was looking at Irkutsk, and we know him as being of Alaska, and we know him as being of Moscow. And in fact, in the bulletin, it mentions that he was in St. Petersburg at one point. So I got to looking at some of these distances that he was dealing with. Even today, to drive from Irkutsk to St. Petersburg in Russia, is 72 hours of driving. We think El Paso's far. But it, in Russia, even today, it's 72 hours of driving. It's an eight-hour flight. And you never leave Russia. We forget sometimes how huge and immense Russia really is. Much less, he was a priest in Irkutsk, and they said, okay, we need you to go to Alaska. He was sent to serve on the island of Unalaska, which is in the Aleutian Islands, right? To fly today from Irkutsk to Unalaska is a 23-hour, 50-minute flight with like three connections. It's 10,000 miles. He didn't have flight. This was 1833. They didn't even have the railroad, right? He had to travel by land and by ship. So when he was called to go serve in Alaska, he took his wife, his son, his brother and his aged mother, and they set out in May of 1833. Anybody want to guess when they arrived in Alaska? 
It was July of 1834. It took them 14 months to get there. And when he arrived, the first thing he had to do was build his own house. They had no house for him. There was nobody there except the natives. Now he was fortunate they had already been Christianized by previous missionaries, but he was sent to serve there. And he served there and he learned six dialects of, of the native tribes. And then he got called back to St. Petersburg. Do you know that the shortest route between Alaska and St. Petersburg is over the North Pole? That's the way an airplane would fly. But no, he had to go all the way back across Russia. I forget how many time zones that is. But he was in St. Petersburg. I assume he went on his way home uh, through Irkutsk on the way back because when he was in St. Petersburg, he found out that his wife while visiting Irkutsk had passed away. I'm sure the journey didn't help. And while he was in St. Petersburg and they told him, well, your wife has passed away, he said, well, okay, can I go home now? And they said, no. No, we're going to make you a bishop. You're going to be a monk and we're going to make you a bishop. And we're going to send you back to Alaska. No wonder we remember this man as a saint, even if he hadn't done anything else. <laughs> Just for putting up with what they told him to do. You know, we often talk about taking a leap of faith. What kind of leap of faith is a 14-month journey just to get somewhere you've been told you're going to serve and you have no idea what's waiting there for you? Like I said, I get mad when I have to walk two and a half blocks. He went 14 months away to some place and had to build his own house when he got there. Some of you may have seen that I published on, on our Facebook group a graph from one of the most recent studies of, uh, it was a survey, they do it every so often, and they ask a certain number of people, what is your faith? And they have different classifications, Catholic, Evangelical, Jewish, whatever. And in the latest survey, there are now as many people in the United States who say they have no faith, no religion, as there are evangelicals. Almost a quarter of the people in the United States now say they have no faith, no religion. <coughs> if you look at political affiliation along with that, among people who call themselves liberals, that number of people with no faith, no religion, is up to 45%. So the question we have to ask ourselves when we remember someone like St. Innocent, 
someone who was willing to take his whole family, uproot everything he had, and go on this 14-month journey in the 1800s to someplace he'd never probably even heard of, had no idea what was waiting for them, the question we have to ask ourselves is, in fulfilling the Great Commission, which we are called to do, what are we willing to do? How far are we willing to go? How many of us would be willing to say, well, you know, where's 14 months from now that you can go anywhere in the world? You probably can't. It would be Mars, right? That's about the only place you go now that would take 14 months to get there would be Mars. How many of us would be willing to say, you know, we're, we have a, we've set up a mission on Mars. We're going to send you there. So go ahead and pack up your family and go. How many of us would be willing to commit to a 14-month journey into, basically, the unknown? <coughs> Thank God not all of us are called to do that. But let's look at the little things. What are we willing to do? When we have visitors come in, are we willing to say, hello, how are you? My name is... If you're an introvert for someone like me, that's pretty difficult to do. I have to work with that. Right? But yet it's what we're called to do. We're called to be gracious to strangers. We're called to be hospitable. One of the things I remember my dad did is uh, we went to St. Elijah's one time when it was brand new, the new church up in Oklahoma City. And dad had never been to an Eastern Rite Vespers before. So he was standing in the back pew. I was up front. I was chanting away. I had, you know, I was doing great. Dad was standing in the back and he was lost. He had no idea what was going on. And Horia Sharon Nasser, Father Constantine's wife, came and stood next to my dad, held open a book, and showed him and walked him through it. As, they were, as we were <coughs> From then on, if Dad was an usher and he saw that someone was struggling, had no idea where they were, you know, visiting, he would walk up to them, he would stand next to them, he would open the pew missile, and he would point and say, here's where we are. I can help you follow along. How many of us are willing to do that? Again, for somebody like me, an introvert, oh, I don't know if I can do that. But that's what we're called to do. We're called to be hospitable to strangers. How many of us are willing, if we meet someone after liturgy, to follow up with them maybe during the week? Well, isn't that your job, Deacon Peter? Isn't that Deacon Ken's job? Isn't that Father Mark's job? No. You know, when we preach sermons, we're taught, always use the word we, not you. Right? Because that sounds harsh. But in this case, it's appropriate. It's not our job, it's your job. And there's two reasons for that. One is, we already have our job. Right? Deacon Ken gets here early on Sundays, he makes sure everything's ready. Everything that I've forgotten to do, everything Father Mark's got forgotten to do, he does, and we get through it. <coughs> Father Mark, we've already worked him so hard, he's sick today. 
we're not even halfway through Lent, right? But what we've the, the the main reason is this: that in church growth studies, what has been found is that when we follow up with someone who has come to visit, if it's a lay person, if it's a member of the congregation who follows up with them instead of a clergyman, that person is twice as likely to return. Twice as likely. Why? Because if I follow up with him, or Deacon Ken follows up with him, or Father Mark follows up with him, they figure, well, that's just his job. He's just doing his job to follow up, to try to get me to come back. But if one of you follows up with them, they'll actually think you care. I hope you do, because that's what we're called to do. We're called to care. We're called to hope that these people come back. We're called to bring others into our midst and to invite them to join the body of Christ. But the best thing that each and every one of us can do is to be an example. In the gospel today, someone cries out from the crowd to Jesus, Blessed be the paps that gave thee suck. And he says, No. Rather, blessed be the one who does the will of God. That's why we remember Mary, is because she was the one who said, Be it unto me according to thy word. That's why she is the example for all of us. Be it unto me according to thy word. I forget which saint it was. He said, If you work on your own salvation, a thousand around you will be saved. That's what we're called to do. We're called not to go out and stand on the, on the on the street corner downtown with a bullhorn and preach, especially because you might have to walk two and a half blocks to get to the street corner. <laughs> oh, got to remember that steps there. But but we're just called to be examples, and if we are examples to those around us, and if people see the joy in our lives, because that's what we're called to is joy. They'll wonder where we get that from. And you can say, well, I would say Peter's. And that's the source of my joy. So let's ask each and every one of let, let each and every one of us ask ourselves, what are we willing to do? Are we willing to take this 14-month journey off to Alaska? Well, thank God we're not all called to do that. But each and every one of us is called to fulfill the Great Commission. To be examples <coughs> to those around us. To work on our own salvation. And by doing so, save those around us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.